How is everybody? Good? Good. As Brendan mentioned, we're going to be picking up chapter 4 in our study. And uh, before I get there, I, I, I like to learn. And so whenever I learn something, I like to share it. And uh, we were at our dinners for eight at Rich and Joni Long's, and she had a pillow that said this, stress spelled backward is desserts. I like that. I, I like that. Um, and I know some other people have had their dinners for eights. Are you out there? Have you had your dinners for eights? Yeah. And we're going to do another cycle. Uh, some of the groups are going to have another. But be watching. It's a great opportunity for you to meet people and fellowship over a meal. It's, it's cool. Um, but the writer this morning is concerned about the stress the people are under, but he's not serving dessert. He's serving something else. <laughs> he's serving chapter 4. And when you see this, it's going to look like, oh, my eyes. You'll see in a minute why I have it on there. In your bulletin, there's a copy that is a little bit more readable. And if that's, if that's making your head swirl, just close your eyes and listen to me as I read. It's a long passage. It's a powerful passage. And there's a lot of stuff for us to take a look at this morning. I'm, I'm looking forward to just walking through it with you guys. Let's read through, and as we do, listen for what the writer's writing about. All right? Chapter 4, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, In this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David in Psalm 95, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Whew! lot there, huh? So, oftentimes when you're reading a big text like that, one of the ways that you can uh, discover what, what it's about is you, you watch for a repeated word. Did you hear any? This is what it looks like if you amplify the rest. Rest, rest, rested, rest, 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 rested, rest, rest everywhere. The writer's concerned about 
rest. And so we want to ask ourselves, well, what exactly is he saying about rest? Do you agree with me that it's about rest? Makes sense. It's a long passage to listen to, but I think there's 13 rests there. That's a pretty safe bet that that's what it's about. If you see the word or concept repeated, you know, you know. Now, the writer talks about rest in three different ways. He talks about rest as in God's rest. Therefore, where the promise of entering his rest still stands. He talks about Sabbath rest. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then he talks about rest in in terms of the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of it another day. So you hear about it as God's rest. You hear it about as a time for rest, the Sabbath day. And you hear about it as a place for rest, the promised land. So now we want to put on our thinking caps and, and, and go a little bit deeper and say, well, what, what does this writer want us to do or not to do? The reason that Sharon and Brandon and I and whoever's really speaking will ask you those two questions is because it's so important and it's so integral to our walk with Christ. The two questions are, what is God saying, right? And what, what is he saying right now? He's saying something about rest, Right? And so the the question that follows then is, okay, you're talking about rest. What do we need to do about it? Does that make sense? So we want to walk through and we want to listen to what is it that the writer is saying about rest? Is there a promise? Is there a warning? Is there wisdom for us? Is there a lesson? Is there something to do or something not to do? So, In verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What's his concern? What does he want? Yeah, he doesn't want us to fail to enter that rest. He wants us to get it, right? So he's, he's saying we need to pay attention this idea of fear Brennan touched on this last week when he was talking about reverence and all. It's not like uh, the phobic fear, but it's, it's an awareness. It's, it's a, you know it's important. Um, if you're flying overseas, you don't get to the airport five minutes before the flight leaves because you fear that you'd miss the flight. And you realize, I've got to get there early enough so I get through security and get to where I'm going. And the writer is saying, you need to pay attention to this, otherwise you're going to miss something that's so central to your salvation. Now, when God, when God is talking about rest, is he talking about a nap? No. It's not that kind of rest, is it? It's not like you can lay down and take a nap. In fact, have you ever had a time where you're going through a stressful situation or unrestful time, and you're, you're tired and you know it? You go, man, I'm so tired. And then you go take a nap, and you wake up from your nap, And you don't feel any more refreshed. Because it's not your body that's tired. What's tired? Your soul. Right? And and the thing that the writer is talking about isn't about this physical fatigue. He's talking about soul fatigue. And he's he's saying, that's what you need. You need real rest. Because remember, these people are going through a very unrestful time. 
I mean, literally, it's like Dan and Tammy go home, they get into their house with their kids, and they hear a knock on their door, and standing at the door are these people that look mean and angry, and they're arresting them because they have enough evidence that they're practicing Christians. And they're whisked off, and they lose their home. They might be separated from their kids. That's very unrestful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, we live in a place where that's not going to happen. But the writer knows this is the kind of stuff they're dealing with. They need real rest. A nap is not going to do that. They need real, soul-touching, charging rest. And so the writer goes on to say, Good news came to us, just as to these other examples, but the message they heard didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So we know in order to get this rest, there's something integral, something tied into it, where it's got to do with our believing, our faith, our trust. Okay? And so, if you go back over the last sermons that we've been talking about in Hebrews, Brendan opens it up. He talks about chapter 1. And all chapter 1 is this long resume of Jesus, the Son of God, who is trustworthy, right? Chapter 2 says, if he's trustworthy and you've trusted him, be careful because you could drift away. And I don't want that. And then Sharon comes in and she starts talking about, again, the trustworthiness. And, and we, we hear that this Jesus, he's bigger than the angels. Yeah, the angels did some cool things. Yeah, the angels were sometimes involved with delivering messages or deliverance, but the angels are not the Son of God. Yes, Moses delivered the law. Yeah. Moses is not anywhere near as trustworthy as Jesus, the Son of God. And so what the writer is saying now is, listen, you've got to believe, really believe that. Unite yourself with that truth so that you can receive the rest. So that's what we want to spend our time talking about, is how do we do that? What does it look like to have this word in our lives? And we want to be good Bible students so we can say, yep, this section is about rest. Yes, the offer is there. We can either enter it or not. And the way that we enter it is by trusting, by faith in God But as we walk through our daily life, we want to think through, what does it look like when you leave this room to really walk and rest? We have to be careful, or we can wind up like Tattoo. And Tattoo is a basset hound who, unbeknownst to him, was going to go out for an evening run because his owner didn't realize when they had been out earlier, he thought Tattoo got completely out, but when he shut the door, he caught Tattoo's leash in the door. And then when the owner needed to go to the grocery store to pick some things up, he took off and Tattoo was still attached to the car. Oh, no, don't worry, dog lovers. But look at at these legs. So the officer that saw this noticed that there was a dog who was picking him up and putting him down as fast as they could, would make a couple of runs, tumble a little while. So he got on his motorcycle, (laughs) flipped Fluffs up the siren, pulls the guy over, and says, Stop! Do you realize your dog's attached to your car? Nope. Now, dog lovers, peace. Tattoo was fine. I don't know how that happened. Divine intervention or something. 
He doesn't like to go for rides anymore. And the owner is very particular about where his leash is at this point in time. But Tattoo had no idea what was going to happen to him because he was tethered to something he shouldn't be. He was leased. He was attached to something. And boy, did it cause him unrest. Amen? Now, we need to pay attention to what's going on in our lives. How are we? What are we tethered to? What are we attached to? Really, what is the driving force in our life? What pulls us along? Just looking at the statistics about work in America today is horrific. 74% of American workers say they are regularly exhausted. There is a term in Japan called kuroshi. It literally means death by overwork. It's a phenomenon that's taken place over the last 20 years. Um, in the last few years, literally tens of thousands of people, people in Japan have died from overwork. Now, here's what's scary to me, is we now put in more hours at work than the Japanese do. It's just like, What? When you look at the start of the recession, 2006, and when things were happening, we started cutting managers out of the picture. And what happened was we reduced the white-collar workforce by about 17%. Yet over the, that year and the next two years, we increased productivity by 22%. Less people, more work got done. And any of you that are working in a white-collar world, have you got your staff enlarged? No. And so just the work picture in America alone causes a great deal of unrest. I always tell people, in 1960, the Senate thought, we should do a study that helps us prepare for the future. Well, if we're going to prepare for the future, let's talk about time. So they said, well, let's talk about what it's going to look like in 1980. And let's do an expansive study on what will be our biggest challenge to face in 1980. You know what they said? What to do with our spare time? Do you want your money back? Then you go to 1994 when USA Today did an expansive study and said the average American, if they get their to-do list, how many hours in a day would they need? They would actually need 43 hours to get done what they think they should get done in 24 hours. That was 1994. We're in 2015. Has it gotten any better? What are we tethered to? You see, here's the deal. Unrest is not just a disordered schedule. It's the result of a disordered heart. That's the problem. That's what the author's getting at. That's his burden. And he's going to give us what we can do about it. He's going to say, I don't want you to look like this. I want you to rest here. I want you to learn something. And, and so there's a couple of things I want to say about this. When the author is talking about rest, he mentions the promised land and the Sabbath. And I want to say to you that rest is not found in either of those. Rest is not found just in a place or a time. It's not found in... They have their promised land. Are they at rest? No. Boy, did they stick to the Sabbath, didn't they? That was the issue with Jesus. Did it bring them rest? No, it didn't. 
But what's interesting is, is that you do need a time and a place in order to get rest. If you watch Jesus' rhythm, and this is what his disciples noticed about him, was that um, he would get up early in the morning, and said he would go to the lonely places, and he would pray. What was he doing? He was entering rest. And they watched this day after day after day, Jesus doing this. And finally they said, would you teach us to do that? And yes, he needed a place. And yes, he needed a time. But the place and the time isn't what brought rest. It was something else. Real rest is only found in this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, whose voice? Jesus, right? Now, the invitation is today. We're talking about rest. So think of that today as Sabbath rest. And the Sabbath rest comes when you hear his voice, right? Now, this is the beautiful thing about Sabbath. And the rabbis missed this. They saw it in part when they were reading the Torah and they were looking at Genesis and the unfolding of Genesis. The creational flow was this way. In the, in the Jewish mind, a day goes evening and morning. So day one, he creates. And then it says there was evening and morning the first day. Day two, there was evening and morning the second day. And it goes on and on, fifth and sixth day. You get to the seventh day, and what does God do on the seventh day? He rests. But you know what? It does not say there was evening and morning the end of that day. The concept was after God had finished the work, that we could step into this finished work into endless rest. That he would do the work for and through us. That we would do it with him as we walked with him. It wasn't something that would happen at one day or one point. It was endless rest, forever rest. It doesn't end. It goes on forever and ever. Every day is a Sabbath opportunity. Today, if you are in unrest, his voice is saying to you, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you can enter into my rest and walk through this day with a different rhythm, at a different pace, with a different purpose, with a closer connection, with a profound sense of God is with me and for me and working around me. It's today. You don't have to wait for the Sabbath. The Sabbath has come to you. It's today. So what does this look like? Well, the problem that happened in Genesis was you know that God creates everything. It's all finished. He has the Sabbath. You know what happened. The fall in the garden happens, and all of a sudden there's unrest. And Jesus comes to earth to restart creation to come and show us what does it look like to live a life of rest and faith and trust in the Father. And as he comes, he's looking around at all the people and all the creation. It's as if he walks into this room and he looks at us. And he can't believe we're so out of sync with the rest, with the Sabbath rest of God. He's the creator. He understands this. He knows how we're supposed to operate. He realized that we were created for relationship that we were supposed to be walking with him. And all, he sees people scattered everywhere, harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And this is what he says. Come to me, 
all of you who are weary and burdened, and what? I will give you rest. Who will? Will the Sabbath? No. Will the promised land? No. Who will? Jesus. He says, come. But here's the deal. We we walk for a while, and we start to lose a rhythm. And it's like the frog in the boiling water. We get used to living in that rhythm. No longer are we doing what he's saying here, where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We're often on a different path. And we go, I'm not experiencing the rest of Jesus. I don't notice an easy yoke, a burden that's light. And what's happening to the Hebrews right now is they're hit a really rough spot. And when you hit rough spots, it's very easy to get unyoked, to say, I'm done with this. I don't get it. One of the things that happens to us when we hear the, the message of salvation is we interpolate that according to us in the center. And we think that everything is going to be according to Mark Spencer. It just happens in human nature. We're convinced that, oh, finally, it'll be like an endless Christmas. I'll get all the presents I want, when I want. And it unfolds that way. And when life crosses us, it's so tempting to us to say, that's it, I'm done. If this, if, if this, if this is what it means to be yoked to them, no. And we back away and we pull away. And now we're not going to enjoy the benefit of walking along the one who can give us rest. We've, we've pulled away. Think about this. When God speaks, what happens? Think again about creation. Day one, God speaks. What happens? It does what it's supposed to do. The heavens are formed. Light and darkness. It happens. Day two, day three. Whenever God speaks, creation responds. It does what God says. And there's this creational flow the way it should be. And what God has done in us, I was just telling someone this morning, you know, the thing about us is being his kind of crown of creation is that he's created us with this capacity to go our own way. And there's not anything else in creation that isn't. The oak tree in my yard doesn't wish it could be a willow tree and change its mind. The hoot owls that hoot at night don't go, I think I want to be a cat. And start pretending they're a cat. We're the only ones that hold the, the possibility, the key of doing something separate, something other than what God has created us to be. And it's both holy and horrible at the same time. It's holy when we step into why he's created us. When you realize your purpose. When you step into the yoke with him and you go, oh, this is what I was meant to do. This is how I was meant to, to, to walk. But when we, when we go, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I want to do that. And it happens so subtly to us. Man, I just, I can't believe in my own life uh, how how I I break away from the yoke. So, 
probably for years, I don't know, you'd have to ask Tom Stewart how long this has been, but I felt for years that I was supposed to write three books. Now to me, my struggle is I go, who am I to write three books? Who am I? Who do I think I am? Some great author or someone that's going to espouse these wonderful truths? And I kind of beat myself up, but what I'm doing is I'm talking myself out of what God's asking me to do. Today, if I hear his voice, write the books, Mark. But I have all these ways that I avoid God. I've realized I am a world-class procrastinator. I just pretend like, la, 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 I don't hear you. I'm not listening. And and any time where I feel like he's asking me to step out, I shouldn't say any time because sometimes I'll risk it, but there are too many times when he says, get out of your comfort zone, walk across and pray for that person who's coughing their lungs out. And you know what I'll do? I'm just being honest with you. I just kind of go, la, 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 I didn't hear that. And I'll, I'll just inch away out of the yoke. And I avoid God. I'm just being honest with you. Now, I love what Dallas Willard says. If that's how you're living here, you're really not going to like heaven because you can't avoid God in heaven. And I'm like, ouch, Dallas. But it's true, isn't it? And I've got all these little nooks and crannies where I avoid. No, that sounds a little uncomfortable. And when I do that, it takes a lot. I'm pulling against the yoke of Jesus. I'm pulling other than What they used to do when they would yoke them is they would take the big, strong oxen that were true and they were straight and they would bring along a young oxen and they'd put them in there. And boy, I'll tell you, if that young oxen starts pulling away, it's like a puppy on a leash. (coughs) And the big, strong oxen brings them back. And I'll tell you, when I'm doing my avoidance thing with God, my soul is not in rest. Now, how do we do this? Because we don't really have yokes in our culture. I want to use a different word. I want to use the word surrender. Which doesn't make us feel any better, does it? If we're honest. Oh, can we go back to yoke, Mark, and not say surrender? I mean, surrender scares us. But let me explain what I mean by this. If you think about how we're made, we have in the deepest part of us our heart, which is where the will is. So you step on the scale after the Christmas holidays and you go, E, cads, we got to get a new scale. This thing's wrong. And you go, no, I got to lose some weight. And so we say, I'm going to find a new diet or a new exercise program. And we start exercising our will. How good is our willpower, people? Not so good, is it? We start out so strong. And then I'll tell you, Brownies chase us down the street. Ice cream Sundays greet us at the door. Strange foodstuffs fall into our grocery cart. It's unexplainable. I don't know how those mint cookies got there. They're just there. And our will breaks down. So we know that our willpower is not enough to really do. In fact, sometimes when we hear sermons, we hear that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't really will that into being, can we? We, we try really hard, but willpower falls short. Keep that in mind. So outside the will is our mind, and that houses both our thoughts and feelings. And then outside of that is our shell, our body. And when people talk about a soul, 
it's, it's the composite of all those things. Now, the way that we really get our, our, our whole heart, mind, body, and soul to cooperate is we surrender. Lord, what is your will? What do you want here? What are you asking from me? What do you want me to give to you? And then as I give that to you, what are you going to give to me? Because we're yoked. We're partners. And when we do that, it's like it sinks everything up. From the very control center of our being, we are saying yes to the one who is speaking today. Our mind will begin to get in cooperation. Our feelings, our bodies, and we'll find our souls at rest because we've said yes to the one who's speaking today. To Jesus as he calls to us. And so many people are wrestling down here. Or they're, they're wrestling with an addiction in their body or their thought life, but they're not surrendering at the core of them. Lord, what is it that you want to give to me? And what do you want me to give over? This is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself. That phrase literally means entrust himself. In other words, let Jesus drive. You are most satisfied. You are most rested when you say, yes, I surrender. This is why the author says this last part as he's talking about rest. He's saying, let us therefore strive, interesting phrase, think Jesus in the garden, striving to say yes to the Father on the cross. Think about that. Think about Paul striving in the Philippi jail when he's been beaten for his faith and he and Silas are singing songs to God because they're striving to enter this rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's speaking, talking. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart right here. So when I'm having my quiet time, all of a sudden I'm in a place. I'm in a place, my promised land. I'm taking the time, the Sabbath rest, and God says this to me. Why do you avoid me? And you know when God speaks, he can say something that simple and it's packed, isn't it? I was like, how did you know I was avoiding you? <laughs> so stupid. I'm a pastor. I should know it. But it's like, that doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a pope. I, I'm, I'm doing it and I'm acting like it's really not happening. Well, the living and active word comes in and goes, Mark, why are you avoiding me? Ooh. And right then, the wrestling starts. And until I say, you know what, Lord? I, I need to get in sync with what you're saying. I need to just do the books. And I need to leave that to you. But you're saying, do the books. And if I'm honest, I'm avoiding you. I'm avoiding that. I'm avoiding the potential fear or failure or whatever it is. And until my heart says, yes, okay, I will be in unrest. I will experience unrest. And day after day, that living and active word comes to you, calling to you. And we don't want to be like this guy here. A pastor tells a story in the Philippines when he was there on a mission trip. And he'd seen a guy carrying a load like this. 
That's what we are when, when, we're, when we're living apart from the yoke. We're just carrying all of our loads. We're carrying all of our stuff. We're trying to do it all on our own. And this man saw him, and he pulled his wagon over, and he said, would you like a ride to town? And of course the man said, yes. And he helped him up into the wagon, and they rode for a little bit longer. And he wondered how he was doing, and he looked back over there, and to his surprise, the guy hadn't taken the load off of his back. And for many of us, when we stepped into Christianity, we stepped in at the hope and promise of being yoked, but we still carry our own load. Jesus doesn't want me to write books. He wants us to write books. I get stuck when I think it's me. I get free when I know it's us. You see, the Savior wants to give you rest, but it comes via surrender. Today is the day. What is he saying to you? It's usually got to do that we are the ones who are in the very control of whether or not we'll receive rest or not. It's got to do by surrendering over and giving over. Here, Lord, here, you take this. This week I, I reconnected with a friend who I had known years ago who had been a Christian for, I bet you, 25 years or so. And he wandered off. And he called me out of nowhere and he said, Mark, I just want to reconnect with you because you're kind of where it started for me and I want to tell you what's happened in my life. And as we sat and we talked, I was thinking about this passage because here we are today talking about this. He was saying, you know, I became a Christian and it was like, okay, I, got, I have my fire insurance. I have my ticket to heaven. But now I have to get busy and I have to live a good life. I have to do good. And so he started as much as he could out of willpower to do good. But he's a businessman and he tried to be good at work. Pretty soon what he was realizing is that he was becoming something that was disconnected from God even though he was trying to do good. It was, and you, you run down that, and it was so exhausting and so tiring that it cost him his marriage. It cost him his business. Almost cost him his relationship with his kids. And in a crushing moment, when he was kind of at the pinnacle height of his business success, he was supposed to present at a conference. It was going to be millions of dollars worth of business. It was going to move him to a place of prominence. Finally, this Frankenstein, if you will, that he's created was going to be hitting the headlines. He gets an emergency call about one of his kids. And his life is shattered. And he has to say no to presenting. And there in the airport, he sat for hours waiting for his plane and finally surrendered in tears. Lord, I don't know what I've been doing. I certainly have not been in a yoke. I don't know who I've been making myself. It's certainly not been according to your plan. But if you can take this mess, and if you can recreate it, would you do it? And you know what he told me? For the first time in years, he knew what it meant to be at rest. All because of surrender. The writer of Hebrews is a pretty straight-on writer, is he not? <laughs> he just says it like it is. And as I looked at this text, I just thought, we need to hear this. 
We need to step into the rest that he's giving to us today. So I want to invite you as we pray and as we get ready for the offering to really today, today is the Sabbath today. Today is the day that he's offering rest. Listen, Lord, what do you want me to give over to you? And what do you want to give to me so that you and I can begin to partner in more restful ways? Would you pray? Lord, it's a serious and sobering call that you offer to us. And it's because you so desperately want us to enter and experience the rest that you promised through salvation. And as we get ready to offer, I think there's, once again, just more that you want us to give to you. And certainly more that you want to give to us. We've got this space of time now, Lord, that we're going to go to and we're going to take communion and we're going to worship and we're going to sing songs that say certain things. But let us not walk through this next 15, 20 minutes without reconnecting, without giving over, without receiving, without leaving this place with a profound sense of rest. In Jesus' name, amen.